Yeah, so the story, the story we read and that we're looking at this morning is about Isaac, sort of, right? Okay, uh, and, and I find, and, and, and I'll, I'll explain that here in a second, I found it interesting as I was studying for today uh, that it turns out, at least in my opinion, it turns out we don't actually know a lot about Isaac. So from Genesis 12 to the end of the book at Genesis 50, there are four men that the narrative uh, revolves around. And so we hear the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And of these four men, Isaac has by far, he has the least amount of material covering his life. And even then, this chapter 26, this is the only chapter in Isaac's section that's only about Isaac. So everything else covering Isaac's life, it's actually kind of about maybe somebody else or some other part of the narrative. So up to now, we do know a few facts about Isaac. We know that he's Abraham's son. We know that he's the son of the promise. Uh, we know uh, we know about the sacrifice that happens in Genesis 22. We know about Rebekah, Isaac's wife. We know about Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. So we know things, we know some things about Isaac, but we don't really know him, right? We don't really know him as the person, if you take my meaning. We do know that Isaac is commended for his faith. He's listed in the heroes, uh, excuse me, he's listed in the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, um, and later in Genesis, uh, God appears one night to Jacob. Uh, this is in Genesis 28. God appears to Jacob, and he introduces himself to Jacob uh, in this way that he will continue to introduce himself many times throughout the Bible. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Isaac. And so it's a bit like a title. When God introduces himself, he's introducing him in this, he's introducing himself in this way. So, and, and then the reverse of this, the reverse of saying that I am the God of Isaac, we might say, Isaac is God's man. So now, how did this get to be this way? How do, how, do, how do we get to the point where God is introducing himself as the God of Isaac? Well, that's what we're going to find out in Genesis 26. Um, we could call Genesis 26 Isaac's origin story. Not in the sense of where he's born or what is his childhood like, but more in the sense of how does Peter Parker turn into Spider-Man? So we're going to see how does Isaac turn into God's man? And I'm going to give you a spoiler now. One thing that we're going to see is that this story is really about God, not about Isaac. So it's more like we're going to see how does God become the Lord, the God of Isaac. After all, God is the main character of Genesis. So, uh, like Jason said, you will be forgiven if you're thinking that this story that we're looking at this morning sounds a bit familiar, because it is. Um, and I guess this might be a good time for the most exciting part of the presentation, which is the map. So, um, anyway, so here's the map. Uh, this is where all of our story is taking place. Oh, it doesn't actually have Gaza on there. So we all know where Gaza is, I think, right now. So this is, like, it's right there. Uh, and this is all taking place quite near Gaza. Uh, 
Isaac farts, Isaac starts out. <laughs> he starts out in uh, at the well of Lahoy, uh, Lahai Roy. <laughs> That's going to take a minute to recover. Um, he starts out at the the well of Lahai Roy, and then he goes up to Gerar, and then we saw that he goes over to Beersheba. Um, so this is where this is where the uh, the story is taking place, um, and I, we, we could probably take that down now. Um, so you'll be forgiven if, for thinking that this is a familiar story because it is a familiar story. In Genesis 12, we have the famine where Abraham travels to Egypt. And in Genesis 20, Abraham turns up in Gerar, the same place where we're at today. Um, and in both Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, Abraham passes off his wife, Sarah, as his sister in order to protect himself. Guys, no, don't do this. Okay? Not a good idea. So, anyways, if you're thinking that you've heard this story before, well, you've heard something quite similar. So, there is a famine, and Isaac relocates his household to the city called Gerar. Now, he could have gone to Egypt. Um, Either location, Egypt or Gerar, would have been well-suited as a place to wait out the famine. In Egypt, there's the Nile River. They have lots of irrigation. And in the Gerar Valley, Uh, where Isaac does go, there's a higher amount of rainfall uh, than where Isaac is coming from down in the desert. So he goes to the city uh, of Gerar where Abimelech is king. And yes, we've heard of Abimelech before. Abraham also had dealings with a king in Gerar called Abimelech. And it might be the same guy, or it could be that Abimelech is a title like Caesar. And so this could be a different Abimelech. We don't really know. But in any case, Isaac is in Gerar. Verse 2 of chapter 26, and the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So God appears to Isaac, speaks to him, and gives Isaac a command and a promise. And it's all very similar to God's call to Abraham. In chapter 12, he restates the same promises, and he even recalls the oath that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 22, which Isaac would remember as he was there for the sacrifice. So what God's command to Isaac is, is he says, don't go to Egypt. Live in this land. And the promise, God's promise to Isaac I will be with you. I will bless you. I will give you land. I will make your descendants many. And through your descendants, all the people of the earth will be blessed. Now, this last part is important. What reason did God give for this? In verse 5, he says, because Abraham obeyed my voice. So now, I thought this was a bit interesting. God commands Isaac to live in the land. He promises blessing because of Isaac's faithfulness? No. Because of Isaac's righteousness? No. Not even because Isaac maybe had previously obeyed God, but because Abraham 
previously obeyed God. Isaac is receiving an offer of blessing from God, not because of anything that he did, but because of something Abraham did. It's unearned. What God has on offer is blessing, descendants, land, relationship with God, the promise of blessing to the world through his offspring. And what does Isaac have to do in order to avail of this offer? Obey the command. So, let's think about this. This is the same kind of offer that God makes to Abraham in chapter 12. A two-part offer, command and blessing. So, if we look back at Genesis 12, just in verse 1, you can flip there if you want. I'll just read it. Uh, The Lord said to Abram, go from your country to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, because Abraham obeys, he receives the blessing. Now, sometimes we think about things like this, uh, like a transaction. And we have, in our lives, we have all kinds of transactional relationships. I go to the shop. I pick out the product that I want to purchase. I approach the cashier, and I make an exchange of money for goods. And that is the extent of my relationship with the shopkeeper. But that's not what this is with Abraham and Isaac. This isn't a transaction. It's more like this. I think the sun came out today. It does seem to be a nice day. So Mark is going to come up to me after church, and he's going to say, you know what, Russ? It's a really nice day. Why don't we walk down to Salt Hill? We'll go to Creamery, get an ice cream, and walk up and down the prom and just have a chat, right? So Mark has approached me, and he's put an offer on the table. If I go to Salt Hill with him and go to Creamery, he's going to buy me an ice cream. It's a two-part offer. I can't get the ice cream unless I go to Salt Hill with Mark, right? Um, I can't do the second part unless I also do the first part. And this is more than just about ice cream. Because what Mark is inviting me to, what he's inviting me into is something relational, something outside of myself. So verse 5 in chapter 26, this doesn't say that because Abraham obeys God, now God is obligated to uphold his part of the transaction. It's that Abraham obeys God, and because Abraham obeys, he then enjoys the blessing God promises. And Isaac, who is the son of the promise to bless all the families of the earth, Isaac is a part of that blessing, and now Isaac himself has the opportunity to participate in the blessing. So what we see here about God, about God's character, is that God acts according to his own purpose. God doesn't act according to Abraham's purpose. He doesn't act according to Isaac's purpose, and he doesn't act according to your or my purpose. God acts according to his own purpose. So we can't influence God or change his mind or convince him to do something that he doesn't already mean to do. And what What is God's purpose, you might ask? Well, let's consider the whole arc of the story of the Bible from creation in the beginning to the end in Revelation. And what do we see God doing? And how does this story in Genesis 26 fit in with what God is doing in the Bible? Well, God's purpose in the whole story of the Bible is to renew creation 
to restore creation and to set things right. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens, the earth, and everything on earth, and everything's good. God creates mankind. Mankind rejects God. Sin enters the world. But by the end of the Bible, we see that God has created a new heaven and a new earth, and in this new creation, all is right, all is restored to the way it was meant to be in the beginning. So God has a plan, and what we see here in Genesis 26 is what we see with Abraham, and what we will see with Jacob, and what we will see God doing throughout the Bible. God is drawing people to him, inviting people into his plan to join him in his purpose to rescue people from sin. God's purpose is the redemption of humanity. And so that's what I mean when I say that God acts according to his own purpose. God has a plan. We can't alter it. And not just, and not just that we can't alter his plan, he's invited us into the plan as well. Through Jesus, God offers us redemption, restoration, salvation, and just like the offer to Isaac and to Abraham before him, we have the offer of placing our faith in Jesus. And if we do, we too can participate in the promise. We can participate in the plan. God's promise to multiply offspring and through this offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We who have put our faith in Christ are the ones blessed by this promise. And we become spiritual children of Abraham and Isaac, and we too are called into the plan and the purpose to bless the nations. Okay, so that's God's offer. How does Isaac respond? Well, it's a short answer, sort of. If we look at verse 6, so Isaac settled in Gerar. Isaac accepts God's offer of blessing, and he stays in the land as God has told him to do. But it's actually not quite so straightforward, is it? So we have this situation with, well, it kind of involves Abimelech, and it kind of involves Rebekah, but it's really a situation with Isaac, right? See, Isaac's afraid. He's afraid of what might happen to him. He's afraid that somebody might kill him to take his wife. Or to take, uh, yeah, to take Rebecca to be their wife, to take Rebecca into their harem. Uh, so what does he do about this, this fear? Well, he lies about it. He says, oh, Rebecca? Yeah, she's my sister. And perhaps Isaac thinks that if Rebecca is his sister, maybe there's a man that wants to, uh, to marry her. Um, and so they approach Isaac as the brother, and they try, they'll have to negotiate with Isaac. And maybe Isaac can, uh, he'll set an outrageous bride price. The guy will say, ah, maybe not after all. And everything's cool, right? Nobody has to die, and that's it. So God's invited Isaac into this plan to redeem humanity, and Isaac has accepted, sort of. I'll trust you, God, but not quite all the way. And I'm not sure that Isaac is right to be afraid because when Abimelech finds out that Rebekah actually is Isaac's wife, not sister, his response, his response, well, he rebukes Isaac for the deceit, and then he passes a law. He puts a law in place that nobody can harm Isaac, nobody can harm Rebekah. It's protecting them. 
So I'm not sure that Isaac was even justified in his fear, but he's acting out of fear and not trusting that God will protect him, which God kind of has to protect Isaac, otherwise the promise won't come true, right? So Isaac maybe doesn't even really believe that God will fulfill the promise. Well, let's see what happens next. What does God do in response? Surely he's going to punish Isaac right, for his lack of faith, for disbelieving God. But no, what we see is that Isaac is blessed, and not just a little bit. Isaac is blessed a hundredfold. We see that Isaac becomes rich, and he gains more and more and becomes very wealthy. So, again, it's a bit weird. Isaac is acting out of fear. He lies. He endangers his wife, and the result is blessing. God blesses Isaac for lying? Hmm. Well, at this point in the story, Isaac is the talk of the town, and Abimelech is now the one that's become fearful of Isaac's success, and he tells Isaac, go away from us. So Isaac leaves the city. He leaves the city of Gerar, and he heads out into the Gerar Valley, and he settles there. And part of getting set up to support his household is finding an adequate water supply. He's got people. He's got all these animals that he's been blessed with. So Isaac reopens a well from back in the days of Abraham, when Abraham used to, uh, used to live in the valley. Uh, but the shepherds from the area, they come in and they say, no, this is our water. So Isaac goes and he digs another well. The same thing happens again. This water, oh yeah, this one's ours too. So Isaac packs up and he moves to another part of the valley. He digs a well and he finds water. And before a quarrel can break out with the locals over this well, he packs up again, and he leaves the valley, and he heads east to Beersheba. Isaac is afraid. He's afraid, and he's running away. We see Isaac still acting out of fear. He's still not trusting God. So when Isaac arrives in Beersheba, his men set to work, digging a new well. At the same time, Abimelech and his entourage, they show up in Beersheba, and Abimelech, Abimelech is clearly still worried about Isaac because of his prosperity, and so he, he suggests a covenant. We haven't harmed you. You won't harm us. Isaac agrees to this. But in God's timing, while the ink is still wet on this non-aggression pact, Isaac's men come in to tell him, we've found water. So Isaac's household, his family, his servants, his animals, everything God has given to him are safe and secure. The safety is guaranteed by a treaty with Abimelech, and he has security with water from this new well. And this time, they don't have to leave. No one can lay claim to this well. No one can chase them off this land. So what we've seen, Isaac still hasn't been trusting God to keep the promise. He isn't trusting God for protection and provision. He's acting out of fear, and he's living by his own wisdom. We don't want any more trouble in this valley. We're out of here. And the result? More blessing, protection, a treaty with the people that he's living among, and provision of water in a place where there wasn't any before. And so it seems odd. It seems odd, doesn't it? Isaac's actions and God's responses don't seem like they line up. Isaac acts out of fear and foolishness. God's response is blessing, prosperity, 
and protection. Remember, God acts according to his own purposes. So God invites Isaac into his plan to redeem humanity, and Isaac accepts it. And God acts according to his own plan. Isaac doesn't participate in the plan perfectly. He isn't perfectly faithful to God. But that doesn't disrupt God's plan. God is the creator. God is the sustainer. God is the king. Think about Psalm 93 that we were looking at this morning. God is the sovereign over all of creation. The things that we do and the things that we don't do won't affect God's ability or desire to carry out his plan or to fulfill his promise. What we see is God keeps his promise, not because of what Isaac does, but in spite of what Isaac does. God acts according to his own purpose because God is faithful even when we are not. And for us today, this is no different. If you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you have been, like Isaac, brought in to play a part in God's plan. But sometimes we get it wrong, right? We like to understand things. We want to understand the world around us and the way things work. We like to control things. I know, I like to think that uh, if I can understand how something works or why something happens, maybe I can control it. I want to control the world around me. So we take this desire, this idea that we can control things, that we can understand why things happen, and we apply it in the wrong way. We take a cause and effect approach and we try to use it to explain what happens around us. And sometimes it does work fine, but sometimes we couldn't be more wrong. And I think you can probably identify with this. Have you ever, have you ever wondered, um, have you ever you know, thought about God as like a genie in a bottle? Maybe, maybe you look in the Bible and you read about Abraham and you see, oh, Abraham obeyed God and Abraham was blessed. Maybe if I obey God, I'll be blessed too. I'll pay God some obedience and he'll pay me back with some blessing. Or maybe you think about Job the righteous man who suffered great loss, and in the end, he received a great blessing. And you think, hey, I'm going through a bit of suffering at the moment. That means coming up next, God's going to give me some blessing. But God doesn't work this way. I can't control God as if he owes me something. I can't predict what he's going to do next because God acts according to his own purposes, not according to mine. Another way we can think about this wrongly in kind of a cause-effect way, another way we can think about this wrongly is if we do this in the reverse. Maybe you have a hardship in your life. You're going through a tough situation, and you think, this is happening to me because God is punishing me for fill-in-the-blank, some, some, some sin in the past, something that you've done. And so you, you, you've disappointed God, and now you're suffering the consequences. You're being punished for what you did. Well, God doesn't work this way either. Yes, we do experience consequences for our actions. And yes, sometimes God punishes sin and sometimes God rewards obedience, but it's not a rule. Sin and disobedience aren't always punished in this lifetime. Obedience is just as often met by suffering and sin is just as often met by prosperity. 
Now, God acts according to his own purposes, which is something, his own purposes, God's purpose and plan is something that is outside of me, and it's outside of you. My failures and my shortcomings, your failures and shortcomings, do not prevent God from accomplishing his plan. When you're afraid and running away, if you're running away from God, if you're running away from a situation, God is still working towards his purpose. He is faithful to fulfill his promise. There was a bit we skipped over. So we're going to go back to look at 24 and 25, verses 24 and 25. So this is after the bit with the wells in the valley. Isaac is afraid. He's running away from the opposition he's facing. He leaves Gerar Valley, the Gerar Valley, and he moves his household and everything that he has. Everyone goes to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. God comes to Isaac in his fear, reminding Isaac that he is God. He is sovereign and he comforts Isaac. You do not need to be afraid. You're not alone. I am here with you. He reassures Isaac I will fulfill the promise. God will fulfill the promise, not for the sake of Isaac, but for the sake of Abraham. Fulfillment of the promise isn't based on Isaac's performance, his fidelity, his faithfulness. God will fulfill the promise because he is faithful. So now, if this is, if this is an origin story, if this is the moment where Isaac becomes God's man, or rather, if this is the moment where God becomes the Lord, the God of Isaac, uh, th- this, is, this is where we see it happen. Isaac builds an altar, and he calls upon the name of the Lord and pitches his tents there at Beersheba. So Isaac responds in demonstration of trust and worship. He makes camp in Beersheba, and he calls out to God in worship. So when God appears to Isaac and speaks to him at Beersheba, he restates the promise he made to Isaac in the beginning of the story, and this restatement isn't for God, it's for Isaac. Isaac is afraid. Isaac needs to be reassured that God will do what he says he will do. He needs reassurance, God is who he says he is, and Isaac receives this, and it turns him from fleeing in fear to holding fast to the hope of promise. He settles down. He trusts God. He worships God. And this works the same, the same way for us. Maybe, maybe we've given our lives to Christ. We've accepted the invitation to participate in God's plan for redemption, but we're doing it poorly. We're failing. Speaking for myself, I am not faithful to God the way that I think I should be. And some of you sitting here, you probably think the same thing. Maybe you think that you're being punished for some past sin, or, that, or maybe you're running away in fear from some, some, some situation. You, maybe you're not trusting God. You're trusting yourself to solve the problem that you're facing. You've forgotten that God acts according to His purpose, and you've forgotten that God is faithful. Well, we don't have to do it this way. If you're a Christian, you are part of God's redeemed. You are part of His plan for redemption, like Isaac you can be reminded of who God is. You can be reminded that you're not alone. 
God is with you, and God is faithful. We are not able to be perfectly faithful, so we stand on God's faithfulness. We stand on God's promise, which is the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. So what do we do? We say yes to God, and we cry out to Him, oh God, I need you, and we worship Him. Homework time, or practical steps, depending on what you want to call it. Um, So, do you want to read about the promise of multiplied offspring? Do you want to know how this was fulfilled? Well, you can do that. Uh, You can do some reading this week. You can go to Matthew chapter 1 and read verses 1 to 17. There's a genealogy there, and this is, it's called uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and we can trace from Abraham all the way up to Jesus and see how Jesus fulfills that promise, the promise of the offspring that will bless the nations. If you want to be reminded and called into worship with God, now I'm going to geek out for just a second on Psalms. Um, and this is, the, this is what's been working for me, and, and so this, the, like, uh, if, if maybe you don't remember, I don't know, but anyways, Psalms is broken up into five books. There's five different books that make up the book of Psalms, and I've, just over the last week or two, I've been reading uh, book four, which is Psalm uh, 90 to 106. So, we read Psalm 93 this morning. That's from book four. And what, what we see in the fourth book of Psalms is the absolute lordship of God, that God is the king the sovereign ruler of the universe. And so, the, the, the psalm that, that I've been camping on a little bit myself in my own devotions uh, recently is Psalm 103. Um, and, and along in this psalm, along with reading about uh, God's majesty and His lordship and His reign over creation, we read of His steadfast love and His powerful forgiveness. We see His absolute sovereignty and also His goodness. And for me, that draws me into, like Isaac, it draws me into a place of worship. Um, and so, you could read all of Psalms, book, uh, you could read all of book four, uh, uh, Psalm 90 to 106, it's only 16 Psalms. Uh, you could read Psalm 103, you could go to Matthew and read about how Jesus uh, fulfills the promise. So, I am going to... Uh, since I'm the one up here, I get to do what I want. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read Psalm 103 um, as our prayer as we finish this morning. Um, just a quick note on the word blessing or the word bless. There's a lot of different definitions for this word. So, what we've been reading about in the way that God is blessing uh, Isaac in the story today, uh, that kind of blessing is, is where uh, the one that is giving the blessing uh, makes a, a change, like a, a material change to the life of the person who's being blessed. And here, when we read about, when we return blessing to God, uh, this is a different use of the word, and so this is, this is about praise, right? Um, so, let's pray. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His way to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, he will, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and it knows it, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Amen. So, do not be afraid. Our God is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and He is faithful, and He is with you.